morning. And as you know, this is the, the second sermon in a series that we're doing called uh, Seven Hebrew Words Christians Must Know. And of course, the must there is, is a hyperbolic way of saying uh, uh, that these are important words for us. As Bree brought out last week, these are, these are words that are meant to help enrich our understanding of the Bible, of God, of the Christian faith, and really of Jesus as well. Jesus was shaped by these words that we're, gonna, that we're looking at during this uh, seven-week season. And so the more that we dive into them and kind of look at some of the technicalities of these Hebrew uh, concepts and words, the more that we are enriched in our own faith. And so last week, Bree kicked off the series with uh, this, this word chesed, chesed, and she uh, brought out the importance of the guttural, that uh, it, when you say the word chesed, there's a guttural sound, and it means steadfast love or loving kindness. It's a description of the character of God. The, we see it in the book of Ruth prominently, and we see it also throughout the scriptures, throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, especially in the Psalms, the steadfast love, the chesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are made new every morning, as Laurie mentioned in the prayer uh, this morning. Today we look at, a, at another word that's an important word, and, and the word is kavod. So you can go ahead and say to the person next to you or to your computer, wherever you are, just say the word kavod. Kavod. It's a, it's a good word. It's a very rich word. And it means glory or literally weight. Um, it also means honor um, or reverence, respect, importance, distinction, um, or honor. And so uh, the glory uh, of God is what we're looking at. In the Bible, when we try to understand this concept in its fullness and we look at it more closely, we come to see that the Bible helps us to see that through this word, it means that all of life matters. It teaches us that your life carries the weight of glory. Your life carries the weight of glory. It's an amazing claim. We see it throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, and then it makes its way into the New Testament. And remember, just a couple of, of weeks ago, as we were celebrating Advent and, and Christmas, uh, the birth of Jesus, when the angel appeared and glory shone around the, uh, the shepherds, and they were afraid, the glory of God shone around um, and, and then we, we see it in Gospels, and then we see it uh, in Paul's letters as well. But in the New Testament, the word is doxa. Doxa means glory in the New Testament. And Paul says this weird thing to the church in Corinth when he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. And we think, well, what does that mean? This is the that Paul has in mind, kavod, the glory of God, do everything to the glory of God. Well, well how, what does that mean? How, how do you eat pancakes to the glory of God? Uh, what does Paul mean by this? And so I want to trace through uh, Hebrew scriptures to see, am I dropping off here? Okay. 
All right, we're going to um, trace through some of the Hebrew scriptures to kind of understand a little bit more about the meaning of this word and uh, what it means for us, because what Paul is saying is that every moment of every day, no matter how trivial it may seem, is pregnant with meaning, pregnant with meaning and matters to God. Your life matters to God, all of life, and your life carries the weight of glory. So let's begin with a little background. Take a look at Psalm 19, one way in which the glory of God, kavod, is described in the Bible is through the wonder and majesty of creation. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. According to the writers of Scripture, the great truth about God is that he is glorious. They reveled in this. And they said that his glory is proclaimed everywhere. And so you look at the mountains, you look at the sea, you look at the clouds, the heavens, and it proclaims, it tells us of God's glory. Now, we often misunderstand this because the psalmist is not saying that, uh, that creation proves God's existence. In the, in the first century and in the ancient world, way before that, uh, the existence of God wasn't really in question. Everyone knew that there was divine being uh, in the universe. Um, and so the psalmist wasn't trying to prove God's existence. What the psalmist is saying is that this creation, the heavens and the earth and nature and everything in it, tells us something about who this God is. His beauty, wonder, majesty, and power. The creation, the power of creation, and the wonder and majesty, and the liveliness of creation reflect the character of God. So what is glory? Glory is the particular excellence of a thing that makes it praiseworthy. So the glory of a flower is its beauty. Or maybe the glory of a rose is its scent. The glory of a strong man is his strength, or the glory of Michael Jordan is his ability to play basketball. The glory, uh, the glory of Van Gogh is his painting. Creation is telling the glory, the wonder, the majesty, and the splendor, and the otherness of God. And so the glory of God is God's creation, which of course includes you and me. And of course, the, psalm, the Psalms say that we are just a little bit lower than the angels. And so there's a special importance for humans within God's creation. And the natural response as creatures is to acknowledge this glory. And so the psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. When we bear witness to the glory of God, His beauty, His wonder, His majesty in creation, our res natural response is to acknowledge it and to share it. But there's so much more to glory than just this. In the Bible, the kavod of God is also particularly associated with the presence of God. Not just God's creation, but God's presence. The heavens 
declare God's glory, but when God's presence is made manifest in the scriptures, his glory becomes more palpable, more, um, more noticeable, more um, possible for experience. And this is where it gets a little bit complicated and even a little bit dangerous. In the book of Exodus, as you know, he, Israel had been liberated under the rule of Pharaoh, God's glory on display there, and they're wandering through the, the wilderness, uh, and God is present on Mount Sinai. And God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, and he gives ethical instructions, the Ten Commandments, for the people. Now, people have had, uh, they've thought about morality, and they've thought about ethics before, but this is the first time that they connected uh, ethical instructions with God. And so, they've, and so God gives ethical instructions to them. He establishes a relationship with them. He said he would enter into this relationship, a covenant, with the people of Israel. And so in Exodus chapter 24, God is present on the mountaintop. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. It says the glory was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. God's glory is so great that we can't comprehend it. We cannot understand it. And so uh, the scriptures use words and God reveals it to us in ways that are the best ways for us to understand. The glory of the Lord is like a fire. We love fire. It warms us. It gives heat, it gives energy, it cooks our food, but a consuming fire is dangerous. You don't want to get too close to it. And so the Israelites were, were drawn to God's kavod, but they were also afraid of it. They stayed at a distance. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Why? Well, one of the most famous verses in the Bible was written by Paul, who was shaped by the Hebrew Scriptures. And it was written to the church in Rome. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That our sin has separated us from the glory of God. And what it does is it makes us want to accumulate glory for ourselves. So in the story of the Tower of Babel, the people essentially said, we will use our intelligence, our technology, and our own strength to build a tower. We will not ascribe to God the glory due His name. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. This is the human condition. We are in the name-making business. And so the actual glory of God is a threat to us. We want to accumulate glory for ourselves, but in the long run, it never works, and we only end up looking silly. And this is why we try, though. We try to look better than we are, or we try to be smarter than we really are. We're hungry for glory, but we cannot get true glory for ourselves because glory belongs to God. The moon doesn't provide its own light. It reflects the light of the sun. We are not meant to be glory makers. We are meant to be glory mirrors, to mirror the glory of God. 
So when the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend, God's glory was so strong that Moses' face became radiant with the light of God, with the presence of God. We're told that the Israelites could not even look steadily at Moses' face because it was glowing. It was reflecting God's glory. That's an image of how our lives are meant to be, that we are meant to reflect God's glory, God's light in the world. But can you imagine that? Moses' face so aglow with the presence of God. But it was temporary. He would put a veil, and he didn't want them to know. He would put a veil over his face so the Israelites would not be able to see that the glow was fading away. It came and he went, but he was hungry for it, kind of like a drug. One day Moses was with God, and he said to God, Show me your glory. What a remarkable thing. Have you ever said that to God? God, show me your glory. If you said that to God, what would you want God to show you? Or what about this? What if you were God and Moses said to you, show me your glory, what would you show him? Would, would, would you show him thunder and lightning? Would you show him tremendous earthquakes or a hailstorm? What, what, what would you show him? Would you show him uh, galaxies or special effects or maybe two planets coming together to display the Christmas star for all to see? What would you show him if you were God? The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. In other words, the most glorious thing about God is not his power. It's not his majesty or his strength. The most glorious thing about God is that he is good. It is how good he is. God passed by Moses and proclaimed his goodness, his kindness, his chesed, his steadfast love, his mercy and compassion. That is the glory of God. And so God revealed to Israel as much glory as they could stand to experience. He wanted them to have a sense of his glory. And so what he then did was he instructed them to construct a tabernacle and to house it in a tent. It was a humble dwelling for the glory of the Lord. Then the end of Exodus said that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory be that came down to the earth and filled the ta tabernacle was so intense that Moses couldn't even enter in himself. The text says the cloud covered the tent. And the Hebrew word for covered or rested uh, or settled is the word shek. And it's where we get our term or the term that you might have heard before, shekinah. Or maybe you've heard shekinah glory. The presence, the, the, the glory of God is now portable. It is movable. It is mobile. It was able to come down to earth and it can surprise you in the strangest of places in the oddest of times. It came in a little tent unexpectedly in the midst of ordinary fallen human beings something transcendently good was happening. God's presence was made manifest and God was going to be with the people. But something happened 
that made it seem as though all had been lost. In the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites lose a battle to the Philistines. And the Ark of the Covenant, Shekinah glory, was captured and taken away. The Ark of the Covenant uh, embodied God's presence among the Israelites. And it was stored in the tabernacle. And so the absence of the Ark of the Covenant meant that God was no longer present with his people. That God was absent. It was a very, very traumatic day. Their priest Eli dies. His son dies. And his son's wife dies. But right before the priest's son's wife dies, she gives birth to a son. And the servant says to her, do not despair. You have given birth to a son. And her final words are, his name shall be called Ichabod. Ichabod. She was making a pronouncement about reality. His name, Ichabod, stems from the word kavod, but it's kind of like uh, in Hebrew, when you take a letter, like the letter that we use as the letter I, transliterated as the letter I, and you put it before the Hebrew word, it turns it into its opposite. So kind of like in English, when you put the, word, the letter A before a word, it turns it into its opposite. So moral, and if you put A there, it means kind of the absence of morality. Well, Ichabod is the same way. Kavod means glory. Ichavod, Ichabod means inglorious. There is no glory. Some of you know that uh, we, my family and I lived in Seattle for uh, five years where I pastored a wonderful church there. And the first year that we were in Seattle, the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. It was, it was amazing. Uh, there was glory all over the city. I had the opportunity to go downtown to do some homeless ministry with the Union Gospel Mission in Seattle after the Super Bowl, and it was amazing. The whole city was just lit up. It was blowing. People were dancing on their cars. There were fireworks. There were confetti. The glory of the Seahawks was on display all around Seattle for everyone to see and to experience. We reveled in their glory. Exactly one year later, the Seahawks were one yard away from glory again. They were, down, uh, they were down by one, and they were one yard away, and it was the last, it was going to be, it was the last couple seconds of the game. All they needed was a touchdown or a field goal, and with one yard away from the end zone, instead of handing the ball to Marshawn Lynch, Russell Wilson threw an interception in the end zone and lost the game. And in a moment's time, they went from the Seattle Seahawks to the Seattle Ichabods. There is no glory, no more glory. This woman uh, who gave birth to Ichabod is saying is making a statement about the reality of the world. There is no glory. Many of us have felt that way about 2020, haven't we? The year of Ichabod, no glory, and we pray that 2021 will be different. But she was essentially saying there is no Yahweh. Abraham was a dreamer. The covenant is a fairy tale. The love of God is a myth. The resurrection of the righteous will never happen. 
The day of the Lord will not occur. History is not moving towards a glorious consummation. Death is final. Life is cruel. I might as well name my kid the truth rather than leading him to believe some kind of a myth. Here's the story of our planet Ichabod. There is no glory. But there was a prophet in the land who believed otherwise. He believed that Shekinah glory was coming and will come again in its fullness. And this is what Habakkuk says in chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a statement about the, where the world is headed. The earth will not simply be filled with the glory of the Lord. It will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord again. We will know it. We will experience it. We will see it. We will somehow participate in it. We will cherish it. That's what the prophet said. And then one day, finally, as John writes and as we remembered a couple of weeks ago, just a week and a half ago, the Shekinah glory, the word made flesh, became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there is the word skene in the Greek. And it means tent or tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God has come to us in full glory in Jesus Christ. Remember the Shekinah glory, the kavod of God, which once came in a humble little tent. Now it has come in a humble little baby, in killable flesh, vulnerable. Now you can touch God's glory. Now you can see it. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And on the night that Jesus was crucified, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. And then he went on to the cross. What a strange kind of glory that is. What kind of God would glorify his Son by crucifying him? But before he died, remember Jesus prayed the most astounding prayer for you and me. Praying for his disciples and for us, he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus' prayer was that through the emptying of his glory on the cross, is that we would be glorified in his place. That the glory of God in Jesus Christ would shine through us. This will happen in completion in the fullness of time. That God's glory will be seen in through us and God will receive us. But for now, with the guidance of the Spirit, little by little, we are growing little by little into the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Paul affirms this when he says, And we all with unveiled faces... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
That's what we are doing right now. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The sole aim of the Christian, if, if with this new year, it's 2021, if we were to make it our aim to do nothing else but to please God, that is why we are here. That is our purpose, to please God. And that, when we please God, that is giving glory to God. I have two brief, pa well, two passages from C.S. Lewis that I want to share as we conclude. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book about this, a whole book. It's called The Weight of Glory. I highly recommend it. It's fabulous. But he said this, when, when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last she has pleased him whom she was created to please, there will be no more room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. It is written, we all stand before God's judgment seat. We will appear before him. We will be inspected by him. And the incredible promise of glory is made possible only by the work of Christ. Only through him shall we survive that examination. Please God and be approved by him. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, and to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delight in as an artist delights in his work, is impossible without the work of Christ. Without Christ, it is a weight we are unable to bear. But with Christ, the glory of God is available to us every day. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is not about waiting for a glorious event to take place, for a glorious vacation, for writing a Bach cantata or some spectacular achievement. Don't confuse glory with glamour. It's not an invitation to a glamorous life. It's an invitation to a glorious life. And really, it's the greatest invitation humanity has ever been given. It's the darkness of the world and the evil one who wants to name us Ichabod, who wants to say that your life is not significant unless you're doing things that seem significant to the populace. But the glory of God is everywhere. And the kavod of God is in you. You are not Ichabod. You are full of the kavod of God. And so when you eat, eat to the glory of God. God is present with you. And he's given you food. Savor it. Don't just shovel it in. Think about how good God is to have given you this food. Some people don't have food in the world. Ask God to give them food too. Chew your food slowly. Savor it. And eat to the glory of God. You can do this. It's what makes the life glorious. To reflect on the cross in the minuscule, trivial aspects of every day. Your life is your own shot at glory. Your home office can be a place of Shekinah glory. Your car can be a place of glory. Everyday activities like paying the bills, doing the laundry, having coffee, talking with people in the neighborhood, reading a book and sleeping, all are glorious moments.
when they're done in and with Christ. So one more passage from C.S. Lewis, and then I'll pray. It may be asked what practical use there is in the speculations with which I have been indulging. Don't you like C.S. Lewis's English? I can think of at least one such practical use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that all we have to do is look out our window or step outside to witness your glory. And that when we look at creation, we know that we serve a God who is beautiful, who is strong and mighty, who is full of love. And when we look at the con consummation of this on the cross, the climax of our story, we think about how much your love has been poured out. That you put your glory aside in order to glorify us. So Lord, humble us in our days this week. Help us to look not to ourselves, but to you and for the purpose and goodness of others as well. Help us to point with our lives to your glory. May it shine through us in love and in kindness and in good deeds. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.